Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 73. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. It means a lot to me. Before we get started on the the interview, I'd like to pass along some of the services that I can provide you and your organization. You know, leadership is the difference maker and the deal breaker. You know how I feel about it if you're a regular listener on the show. I recently became a John Maxwell certified coach, teacher, and speaker. And with that, I can offer you workshops, seminars, keynote speaking, and coaching, helping you both personally and professionally through growth, through study, and practical application of John Maxwell's proven leadership methods. You know, I got over 25 years real-world practical leadership experience as a U.S. Marine Corps officer, professional pilot, corporate executive at the VP and director level, and you know I'm passionate about leadership, and you know that I believe it's central to every aspect of our lives and that all our leadership challenges should be met with that lifelong dedication and pursuit of becoming calmer, confident, consistent, and courageous. So I'm looking forward to working together through accountability with you. To learn more, go to doseofleadership.com, click on the speaking and coaching menu item, and I look forward to hearing from you. Again, thanks for tuning into the show. Well, I'm so thrilled to have on my show Dondi Skumachi. She's an international speaker, author, and expert in professional and personal development. She's known for her high-energy seminars that produce tremendous dramatic results. Her workshops are designed to deliver solid, actionable disciplines for employees and executives alike. She's the author, too. She's her best-selling book, her first one, uh, Designed for Success, Ten Commandments for Women in the Workplace. Her second one is Ready, Set, Grow, where she expands on a mentoring theme, offering a blueprint to rediscover your passion, overcome your fears, and create the life you've always wanted. And her latest one, Career Moves, and readers will discover a powerful story, and I just finished it this morning. It's a great book, and the readers will learn how to write their own story of success. Dondi, I know it's been a long time coming. We scheduled this a month ago. Thanks for finally getting, coming on the show, uh, Dose of Leadership. Yes, a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, you know, we've had so many. Um, I wish we could have, could have captured our pre-conversation in, in, in a month ago and just one we just had. Um, I'm so excited to talk to you and finally capture and recording some of our conversations. So a little bit about yourself. Let, let me and the readers know a little bit more about your journey uh, and how you got to become so passionate about leadership and, uh, and becoming an author. Thank you. I, you know, I started as a banker. I like to say I started at the, the beginning, not the bottom, but I truly started as a teller in a bank in Seattle and worked my way up uh, through the process. And, and, and I, I like to say I took the, the stairs two at a time because I had great mentoring. I had great leadership and great mentoring. Ended up being an executive uh, director and vice president of a couple of large banks in the in the United States, uh, one in Seattle and then one in Minneapolis. And I, um, most of my work was really around developing people and developing um, sales and service, uh, shaping the, the customer's experience, but also shaping the employee's experience. And I just uh, fell in love with that whole developing people side of things. And I, I think as my career uh, became even more successful, I found myself working less with people and working more with attorneys and policies and regulations. You know, my career was taking me further away from what I loved. And so I made a scary decision. I, you know, it was a big, scary leap to uh, become a consultant, which is really code for unemployed, and just really explore this idea of becoming a speaker. I uh, was speaking um, for 
over 15 years now, speak full-time around the world. I think I've been to every state except for one, I'm, and I have it on the, on the target list. I'm going to get there eventually. I uh, do a lot of work in Europe and, and, and a great deal of work in, in Africa, Australia. I get to go there once in a while to do some work in Canada, quite often actually there. Uh, so I, I travel a lot. Uh, I spend a lot of time in airplanes and hotels, but also with great people around the world, really figuring out how do we fully engage and how can I take a hold of the possibility in front of me with both hands, right? Um, and how do I take responsibility for my own journey as well? Uh, the authoring part, the, the writing part, um, fell out of the speaking part. Uh, a publisher was at one of my conferences, and it was a large conference for women in San Antonio, my home. And uh, at the, the speaker's dinner, uh, the, a publisher turned to me and said, I've come to, to ask you if you'd like to write a few books. And I said, absolutely. So that was the trilogy. I call them the girls, right? <laughs> you know, it's designed and grow and then move. Uh, and they really are, uh, you know, each, each stands alone. But there's a continuation also between them. It's really about taking full responsibility for myself. For example, in Design for Success, there was a model that I, just, I, just, I think is so powerful. I wish somebody would have handed me this model when I was in high school and getting ready to continue my education and moving out into the workforce. And the model really talks about the value that you drive determines the opportunity that, that you see. So opportunity always chases value. Mm, yeah. And if I can just focus on the value that I drive, I need not worry about my opportunity. It's on the way. A lot of people have that flipped over. They're waiting for opportunity to show some value. Right? I've actually had people say to me, well, when I'm paid more, I'll do more. And I laugh about that because you're not worth more yet, right? You have to be something first. So it's really about taking full responsibility and focusing on those actions that produce results in my life, the results that I want to see that align with my, my values and my definition of success. And knowing that if I would just every day focus on my value, the opportunity chases that. And so my opportunity will come. Yeah, I love that. I love the fact... Um Oh, if you just could just tap into your purpose and and providing value without asking. I guess it's just called good old-fashioned initiative. I can tell you how many times um, people that uh, have worked for me or I've worked around and I've seen them kind of just waiting for them to be told what to do or waiting for the opportunities to come to them. And um, it's not the case. You've got to take on those assignments that necessarily um, are scary to you or they don't seem all that attractive. Um I don't know. You know, I love what you just said, and I love. You know, I need to read your other two books. The last one, or the one I just finished. I mean, it, that highlights that theme quite a bit. That you have to kind of make your opportunities and, and show your value in other ways. You just can't wait for things to happen to you. Being a little creative, I also think you said something really important just now. I like to ask, you know, I, I am a designer of mentoring communities for the Fortune 100. So when I look at the core of my work, I spend a lot of time around uh, building those mentoring communities and making them part of the DNA of the organization. So because I think for, for most organizations, what happens is, is that they, have a, they might have a mentoring program. And things start out, really they do at a programish level, and that's fine. But you want to push that to the veins of the organization until it becomes a natural way of doing business. It's not a program, right, mm-hmm. that I'm in. It's a way of thinking about where I am and the opportunities around me and how I can serve and how I, and what I need and how I'm reaching for mentoring. 
So, you know, you really do spend a lot of time around those conversations and that initiative that you talked about. Sometimes when I'm, when I'm working with the mentoring communities, I'll ask protégés and mentors, what risks are you taking mm-hmm. and what risks should you be taking? Because I think that um, if, if we could ask bigger, better questions of ourselves, and that's really always the call to action for a great mentor, is ask bigger, better questions. And it's not about having all the answers as a mentor either, right? It's about asking those big questions and getting people to think um, and to, to notice things that they might be missing otherwise. You know, getting back to the, the whole value added, one of the exercises, and I'll just share with you, this is a quick just takeaway for your listeners. One of the things that I'm working on right now is a 30-day journaling um, challenge because people, I, I'm a big believer in journaling, but I haven't always been very good at it myself, right? I'll start out really good, and then my journal will sit there, and it'll be, I'll, I'll open it up, it'll be, you know, six months ago I wrote something in there. And so I've been trying to figure out what is the discipline of journaling? How do you how do you get that to be sort of an automatic behavior? And one of the things that has really worked for me is that I sat down and I figured out what are my top, what are top ten things that I might not do them every day, but I certainly want to build them into my week. I want to be mindful of them. Um, they could be whatever you want them to be. For me, sometimes there's a spiritual element, um, some devotional time. Um, there's exercise, certainly, some time to get active. Um, I want to be, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, an avid reader, uh, so reading, I, mean, I have a stack of books uh, sitting next to my desk that I need to read are in queue. I think you probably can relate to that. Yes. There's always those good books. So, um, reading a chapter of a great book every you know every day would be a great a great discipline. So I have my top ten, and at the end of every day, I just look at my ten and I say, how many of these things did I touch today? And it and then and writing a little bit about what I learned or what I noticed or um, you know how that moved my efforts forward, even for five minutes. And it has been really interesting to see the discipline and sort of the intentionality around. I think that, that part of the, the magic, if you will, of that, of that is the list is mine. It's not a list of something, someone else that I should be doing. It's what, here are the actions that produce results in my life and, and line up with my values and my, my goals and my dreams. So um, once I have my top ten, these are the actions. And if I were just more true to these actions, if I were more mindful of them and more intentional with them, I would drive value. And in that value, I will create opportunity. So it's, you know, it's find the actions that produce results and, and results will take care of themselves. It kind of comes back to that that theory again. I love that. It's, you know, I jotted that down. It's pretty brilliant, actually. I mean, if, if you think about – and I'm the same way. I mean, I've started journaling, and I definitely see the value, but then it just kind of it wanes off like anything else, exercising or something. you got to be intentional about it. But if you put the, the top ten – Kind of the most important things that you want to focus on, and then you know take a daily assessment of how you did. Just kind of debrief, yeah. yeah. You just do a little bit of a debrief. How did I do? And and you know what I've noticed? I've been doing this. I've you know it's a thirty day challenge. So I've been doing it for a few weeks now. And what I've noticed is that there are some things that add a lot of value, uh, and I really enjoy doing them. But I'm not I'm not doing them often enough. Right. So now I'm just kind of challenging myself. Okay, how do I just do that a few more times a week? You know, how do I, so it's not a punishing exercise. It is really just an awareness exercise. And I'm finding now that my top ten are becoming more of a natural part of my day. And I'm looking for opportunities to apply them and to implement or deploy those things. That's great. So, for example, one thing on my top ten is to pick up the phone and talk to someone on my network that I haven't talked to in a while. Not an email, 
right? Just pick up the phone and say, I was thinking about you today. I want to see how you are. And take 10 minutes to just reach out and, you know, literally touch somebody uh, because I think that we can get so busy that we, we lose track of people. And so, you know, once a day, 10 minutes, just reach out and say hey to someone. How are you? Is there anything you need? Is there anything I can do? I love that. In fact, one of the things I was talking about in a couple of the masterminds, I, uh, folks that I'm running, we were talking about this, the whole idea of, of experiences. And what you're doing right there is the intentionality at the end of the day of kind of jotting your experiences. That is, you know, we, we experience life automatically. Everybody does until we check out, right? We have no choice mm-hmm. in that matter. But what we do have a choice in is the um, insight and the reflection. And that's what you're talking about there in um, kind of, you know, looking at how you did on your it's it's that marination of the experience of the day. And, and, and you know, John Maxwell is the one who originally taught me about the concept of a little more structure in my journaling. Mm-hmm. I read his book, Thinking for a Change, years ago. Yeah. And one of the the thinking skills that he highlights in that book is reflective thinking. And when I took the little assessment mm-hmm. <laughs> around, I realized I am—I wasn't doing any. I mean, I was not. Refl- I was just reacting to life. I was just crossing things off my list and yeah. going on to the next project. But I wasn't really debriefing at all. And he suggested sort of a process of, you know, maybe three or four questions that you asked yourself. What did you like about today? What was what was your favorite part? What would you change if you could? How you know how you know and and, and what kind of a mom, you know, dad, wife, husband, you know, really kind of doing that just a five minute debrief, and then at the end of the week maybe look back through that and look for your patterns and your trends. You know, and it's you know, it, it is so it's what you just said there. It's true, and then we just we. Ex- we get so wrapped up in experience in life and don't have time, and, and it's just a bunch of business, and you don't even know if it's adding value or not. And that's, ah, that's really good. You know, because the workforce, I will tell you, one of my theories, and, I, and it's one that I hold, hold pretty, pretty true, uh, is I think the workforce in general. When I do non-scientific polls around the world with employees, I say to them, "How many of you know that right now in your organization there are a lot of really good people working really hard on things that just don't matter?" <laughs> Right, throwing right. yeah. their strength and their energy, their time, uh, you know, the, the, after something that isn't going to make a difference, that isn't well aligned to the to the strategies or the priorities of the organization. It's not calibrated or synchronized at all. It is just. And the example that I use is the report. A, a woman told me about this report that she would just wrestle with every single month, and it was this big report, and it was highly visible. Everybody got it at the highest levels of the organization. It would take her a couple of weeks to put it together. It was, you know, she she would just. She hated that part of her job. It ate up a lot of time. The, the, the reporting mechanism was just full of holes and inaccuracies, so she had to check and double-check. It was just this awful process, and every month she would just drag herself to that task, and she would hit send on the third of the month. Well, I challenged her one month. Go ahead and get the report ready and just don't hit send. Mm-hmm. I want to see how many of those big dogs in your organization pick up the phone and say, where's my report? Yeah. Not one person asked for that report. Yep. She's never done it again. No one was looking at it. I know. And it was taking hours and days of her time. So it's amazing. But I think that most of us can relate to something we're doing that when you really look and say, how does that connect back to the mission, to the to the strategy, to the highest priorities of the organization? How am I impacting what really matters? And anything on my list that I cannot directly speak to the purpose of that, I need to challenge that. I love that. And you, you, you brought up some old memories. I did that maybe about 10 years ago. I was in an 
position and I'll run an international operations department and I would get just these inordinate amount of emails, right? And I was just overwhelmed and felt like I had to get through all of them. And, and same thing, reports and all this stuff. I'm like, what's that from that movie, um, Office Space, TPS reports or something? It always reminded me of, mm-hmm. you know, but it was kind of like that. And I did an experiment, just like you said. I just, I, one day I just, for about a week, I stopped. I didn't reply to uh, any emails except for the ones that are just obvious, you know. And um, it was about 80% I didn't respond to. And you know what? The you know the world kept moving. Um, a lot of the requests that people asked me for, they forgot. You know, and uh, that's something I've always took with me. Is I like, let's just you know, just relax. You know, give it a couple of days. Maybe they really don't need that report. Maybe they really don't need it. And um, I don't know. There's there is a lot of business out there that isn't adding a lot of value. And it's unf- and I think that's a really good leadership lesson too. What you just talked about, because I can remember as a, as a young executive in a bank, the president of the organization asking me for some reports, some data. And he loved data, by the way. This guy loved his data. And he loved Excel, and he wanted to, you know, see how many ways we could crunch those numbers around. And that was um, hard for me. It was not my natural discipline. I can do it. I can make you a nice spreadsheet, and I can have some formulas in there, and I can speak to it pretty well. But it would just drain me. And I remember on this day, his assistant had called and said, he really wants these numbers, and he he needs them by 3 o'clock today. And I had a, a calendar full of coaching. I was coaching my sales team. And I remember very reluctantly canceling those coaching appointments. And uh, that was disappointing for them, and it was disappointing for me. And I sealed myself away, and I hammered through this yet another new kind of spreadsheet. When I hand-delivered the report to him at 3 o'clock, his assistant said, he's gone golfing. Nice. And I was so furious about that. And you know what? I mean, this is a, a confession, not a tip. I actually delivered that to him on the ninth hole. Awesome. Because I felt like if you're going to ask me for something, then uh, I'm going to deliver it. And right. if you're on the golf course, then I'll deliver it here. And he never did that to me again. Uh, he was a little surprised to see me, and I said, I understood this was a, a priority, so I wanted to make sure that you had it in time. I'm sorry I'm a little bit late. It took me a little while to find you. Awesome. But he never again asked me to do something like that with a, with an arbitrary deadline that was really meaningless. I never heard another word about that report, and he never asked me to do that again. But I think it's a good message for leaders, too. Is when we are, you know, sometimes leaders send unintentional messages, yeah, right? Oh, like yeah. I hear the story mm-hmm. about the, 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 the leader that was walking through that, you know, there was a merger, and he's the new CEO, and he's walking through. And of course, all the employees are, you know, this is their, their, their new leader, and, and they're a little nervous, and, and somebody was, and they were taking him on a tour, and he happened to just, you know, like, just a, like a, a, it was just a side note conversation with someone saying, it was, you know, he hates PowerPoint. Hate PowerPoint. Because I think that gentleman had said, "We'll we'll get you up to date on all of the, you know, all the the uh, projects that are going on." And he said, "I just hate PowerPoint." So that word just went rippling through the entire organization, and IT literally pulled PowerPoint off of every single computer all over wow. the sales organization. And so the, the I don't know about a, I don't know a couple of weeks later uh, they were doing he he did a ride along on a sales presentation and uh, the, the customer said do you have some do you have some slides that we can see can we see this data and they said no we don't use PowerPoint oh and he turned and he looked in the car right back and he said we don't use PowerPoint and they said well you you said you hate it so we thought we 
And he said, I was just saying, when you come to my office to give me updates, I don't need a slideshow. That was all he was saying. Wow. He wasn't saying, rip it off of every computer in the organization all over the world. He was just saying, don't come to my office with formal presentations. Just come and talk to me about what's going on. But I think sometimes leaders uh, send unintentional messages. Oh, yeah, that's a great story. And that reminds me of another one here, if I can share it with you, that um, when I was in that same position of running the international operations, we had a uh, – we would manufacture the stuff in China. And I came up with a spec sheet, an 8.5-11 spec sheet that we would make sure to give the factories. And, of course, they, they built it based on this spec sheet. And I would take it through each department, and we were having some trouble with quality, and they were you know, supposed to be red, and they were making them blue. Why? Well, because the spec sheet didn't get updated. And so I was focused on that. And the same type of situation, we had this huge uh, order with Costco, huge, um, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars worth of you know, sales. And it was a big deal. And I don't know if you were with Costco, you know, they like things to um, – you had to – instead of putting things in a brown cardboard box, you had to put it in a decorative box with the artwork on the outside. So when Costco got it, they could you know, cut the lines, take the top off, and it was already displayed. So it was oh, a nice work, yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, I was new with that, and then, of course, I spent the spec sheet out, and, man, we were just a huge success, and everybody was just kind of rolling, and, and, and you know, the margins were great and everything. And I come to work one day, and my email is just inundated, tons of messages, and I didn't have a company cell phone at the time. And um, anyway, the the order was going bad. Costco rejected uh, the shipment. They were, you know, the first containers were at the dock, and they reject, rejected it because they weren't in the proper packaging. And um, they were all in brown cardboard boxes. And so um, I came in and I looked at the spec sheet, and sure enough, the the graphics says brown RSC box instead of a white KLA graphic box. And I'm like, wow, this is what the, they did exactly what the spec sheet said. And so I took it to the graphics department manager and I said, hey, you know, this order is, you know, this is bad. we got to change it out. This is bad news. Costco's rejecting it. And she said, well, everybody knows it's a KLA box. And I said, well, you signed off at Brown RSC. She goes, oh, big deal. They they, they know. Uh, uh. I got on a plane and uh, two days later I was in China in the factory. And I was down there on the floor and there's a mountain of the brown cardboard box you know, where they were taking packages out and putting in the brand new packaging, right? And it really hit me, and the, and the supervisor was saying, and, he, and my translator was there, and he said, here's the floor supervisor. And I'm like, oh, hi, I'm you know Richard from so-and-so company. And he looked like he wanted to kill me. And he's speaking very angrily in Chinese. He's not speaking English. And I'm like, what's he saying? He's like, oh, no, don't worry about it. We'll just go on. I said, no, I, I want to know what he says. And so basically the translation was he wanted me to know to understand all the problems and the, and the troubles that they went through to change out this order. And in China, they're almost like dorms. The factories are like dorms. Like families live there. They eat and feed them. Right, and, right. And, and they, you know, very nice factory, very clean. They, the kids go to school there in the factory. But they woke everybody up in that. He, he wanted to let me know that there were three containers down at the dock already. And they woke up the entire factory, even on their day off. It didn't matter. And their family members, they went down there and they unloaded and changed it out. And that impacted me so greatly is that, look, all for one on an eight and a half, eleven piece of paper in a little section because you marked one, you affected the lives of, you know, that attention to detail. Oh, hundreds of people and all of the people that are in yeah. their lives. And, and you know what? You, you, you are 
so on track there with a statistic that I read years ago, and I'm sure that it's probably still very true. The number one cause of non-performance is often related to this. I just don't think my performance really matters that much. Yeah. If I do this well, it's okay. If I don't, it's not a big deal because I'm just this one ant in this ant heel of people. I'm not that powerful. And I think part of my message is, and a message that I love to bring is, you really are that powerful. Right. And there's a tremendous purpose and impact to the decisions that you make every day. So when you choose to do or not to do, understand that there is an impact to that. You are that powerful. Uh, and, and I think the workforce is really thirsty for that message because I think that they have felt uh, not very powerful for a very long time. And that if they buy into that sort of message that I'm not powerful, I'm just an employee. Uh, you know, I, when I ask people what they do, I so often hear, you know, departments and titles. I don't hear purpose. And yeah. I think that that's the, the the lost part there, the purpose behind the task. So, you know, that you know, what is the purpose behind what you're doing? Dig for the purpose, because I'm a big believer. You can know what to do, and you can even know how to do it pretty well. But if you ever forget why you're doing it, you're done. A great point. I think you know what I love about and careers that I read out a theme anyway is, and we're talking about here is is, and I've seen this, and people have asked the question, "What do I do?" When I'm in a position where I don't have a strong leader, I don't have that leader that empowers me. I don't have the leader that has the strong vision. And I love what you said there that you are obligated to fill that vacuum regardless of, of who uh, the leadership above you. I mean you do kind of see people making – let's be blunt – making excuses when the leadership is weak, right? Right. So it's we wait for our leader to be effective so that we can be effective. Right. And, you know, there is a, I think, a, you know, in, in the in career moves, it's actually, there's some characters as a mentoring story. So each chapter begins and ends with this story that you see uh, unfolding. And I think that it'll, Elena, the mentor, is actually talking about her her corporate shame story where she was mm-hmm. waiting for her, her executive to become this effective person. And he didn't. And she, uh, you know, it's, it's that, that whole dysfunction invites dysfunction. You don't mm-hmm. have to RSVP. <laughs> um, but you know, she, you know, she was talking about how um, her leader was so ineffective, and, and it became this sort of game that they played. Um, and she would withhold information because he was so controlling, and you know, and and then he would become more controlling because she was withholding information. And really, what she learned from that was that she had that that she had become part of the problem rather than part of the solution. She was asking herself the wrong questions. And you know, there's a lot of great information out there around you know asking better questions. But if you ask the wrong question, you are going to get the wrong answer. And I can even relate to that in my career, in my corporate career, um, having asked the question before uh, of leadership, who picked this guy? Right. You know, how do you get to be that level with that skill set? You know, what is he thinking? I should have been asking questions like, how do I partner more effectively? Yeah. How do I make it unnecessary for this person to uh, over-control or micromanage? Uh, how do I build trust? What does he or she need? 
how do I become a better business partner? I, if I would have asked questions like that a few times in my career, I think I could have really um, been the catalyst for something very powerful. But I think it's also, uh, you know, in, in career moves, there's the four elements of your high-performance zone. That's a model that's presented in the book, and the four elements come together, and X kind of marks the spots where you know, we're, we're perspective, and we talked about that mm-hmm. already, the pers- that, that, that perspective, you know, calibrating and, uh, and synchronizing with, with the organizational goals and strategies and really lifting your perspective. So it's not just a task orientation, but it's really a strategic orientation and challenging some of those tasks, as we've been talking about, that might not touch the strategy or you don't understand how they do. And then leadership is the second element, and that's where you were talking about you know, if you find yourself in that leadership vacuum, you have to fill that vacuum with personal leadership and also with mentors. Right. You know, really reaching outside of that scenario to say, where are my mentors? Um, and the deeper the gap or the wider that leadership gap is, the more you're going to have to be. And by the way, that's not going to be uh, necessarily an automatic natural response. The natural human response is going to be to, to focus on the flaws of your leader. Yep. Um, that will take you to a very, very to a dead end, right? Mm-hmm. It will dead end you. Uh, so that that you know, filling that gap with leadership, um, personal leadership, and mentoring, and per- and then and also then it, it kind of coming back around and tagging up with the perspective and and staying objective based. You know, one of the stories that I use uh, since writing the book on that, really presenting that leadership piece, I, I learned on an airplane. I travel a lot and. This was a small plane. This is the the, the little uh, the little plane that I try not to go on too much because it, 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 you're concentrating on how small it really is, right? Or trying right. not to. And my knees are you know jammed up against the seat in front of me. I think I'm in the second seat, and there's a a gentleman sitting in front of me. Now I could tell he was a little restless in his seat, uh, and then that became even more restless and almost to a point of you know pure agitation. And then some language was flying around. We were sitting on a tarmac in bad weather, and it was going to be quite a long time, and we just received the news from the pilot that we were, like, I don't know, 49 in line or something, so you know this isn't going to be a fast uh, turnaround, and it was a busy airport. It might have been Atlanta, and so, you know, you, you just, and, I, and I'm just trying to concentrate on one more leg, right, one more leg. I'm almost home. I'm almost home, and this guy is just becoming out of control, and I, and I you know, I did, you know, give him a little nudge, you know, in the back of the seat with my knee, trying to kind of get, you know, give him the, the nonverbal cue to knock it off, because I wasn't appreciating any of the experience that he was creating for me. And it's not like I can just get up and go, right? Right. I mean, I'm I'm stuck there with you. Uh, His traveling mates were kind of shushing him, and he was just becoming louder and more agitated. And I start to have this horrible thought, you know, if you don't stop it, they're going to arrest you. And I don't really care about them arresting you, but we'll have to go back to the gate for that to happen. (laughs) I don't want to start over. (laughs) And then he started doing the unthinkable. He started kicking the plane. He started kicking the bulkhead of the plane. And I knew it was over. I heard the attendant seatbelt snap. She was back to him, and I thought, here we go. We're going back to the gate. She's going to tell him. She's going to get him 10 seconds to knock it off, and we're going back to the gate. And then she was a leader. She knelt on in front of this guy, and she looked him right in the eye, and she said, sir, what do you need? Mm. And it just stopped him. And he said to her, in a little bit of a shaky voice, I'm having a panic attack. I'm claustrophobic, and I'm having a panic attack. And she said, well, then that, in that case, why don't you come forward, stand up with me. There's a little more room. I'll get you something to drink. And I'm thinking, sure, you just go drink with you up in the front of the plane after that behavior. But still, 
you know, as I thought about it more, when he turned back around, by the way, when we took off in a few minutes, um, he apologized to everybody on that plane wow. for his behavior. And I thought about her the whole ride home. She was so elegant in the way that she just handled that situation. I think that she did five things really well. The first thing is, is that she equalized the posture. You know, she, she shared her power with him in that moment. Mm-hmm. She didn't stand over him, and she didn't have to make him wrong so that she could be right, and she didn't have to wield her power, which she did have, by the way. We all know that she had some power there. Um, she shared her power, but she also, she led with a question, not mm-hmm. a direction. And I thought that was pretty powerful, too. She reached into the situation to pull solutions out of it, and I think that uh, another thing that she did that was just so I have so so powerful was she kept her eye on the objective, right. right? She was really kind of thinking a little bit like an improviser, an improv theater. I I talk about that in career moves and mm-hmm. improv. You know, a scenario is thrown at you. That's called an offer. And in life and in work, we have to receive our offers, and then we can work to advance the scene, even if we want to change the direction of the scene. And she did that so beautifully. She changed the entire direction of the scene, but she did receive the offer. She didn't bat it away. She didn't block the offer, right? And she never forgot for one second that the whole goal, the whole point of all of this is that we take off and land somewhere else safely. Yeah. Loved that lesson in leadership from her. That's an awesome story. I love that. And just to see, because most of us would, you know, use our position and authority and title to try to settle this person down. But she had the foresight and the emotional intelligence to say, "Okay, I got to dig down deep and figure out what this guy really needs." Mm-hmm. We're, we got to. We're going somewhere, right? We're not. We're yeah. all going to go together. I just. I learned so much from her, and I. And I always kind of study. Sometimes the flight attendants. Uh, I've noticed, and it is personal leadership. You know, when I get on planes, there are some flight attendants I've noticed that you just want to cooperate with right. them. I mean, you just, you wouldn't, for one thing, they're, they're competent and they're strong, but they're also gracious and graceful. And when they say, turn off your stuff, absolutely, right? Mm-hmm. There's other ones that just sort of bring the, the, the resistance out in people. I've mm-hmm. watched them. They are, they are, they're, they're marching up and down the aisles and they're using their power. Yep. And I see the impact on passengers. I see passengers sort of waiting for that third warning, right? To turn off your stuff or, or sit down in your seat. I, I just think that um, our approach will invite cooperation or resistance. Yeah. And if we're getting a lot of resistance, uh, we might want to think it's about them, but we might need to change our approach, right? Yep. Well, the cornerstone of all leadership is, is, you know, taking it all away from yourself and trying to provide value for somebody else. And that's exactly what she did in that situation with, you know, with, that, with, with the objective in mind, too. Yeah, exactly right. You know, one of my dear friends, we've talked about him in some of our pre-call uh, conversations, Bob Burke. His latest book with John David Mann is brilliant on that. It's called uh, It's Not About You. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a leadership fable. He's the gentleman that wrote with John David Mann, The Go-Giver, uh, which uh, gives you the, the five laws of stratospheric success. Uh, New York Times bestseller. It's been a fabulous, fabulously successful book. I love it. It's one of my favorites. It's on my favorite shelf in, in my office. And sitting right next to it now is the new one, the, the, It's Not About You. And it's the, the whole premise of leadership. It's just not about you. Right. That's right. It's not. It's all about them. It's not about you. 
I love that. Oh, there's so much stuff I want to talk to you about. I'm running up against the clock. I'm looking at it here. But one other thing that, you know, I want to make sure that people can find you. Um, you're pretty easy to find on the web. But uh, go ahead and give a plug for where people can connect with you. Certainly. I would love to have people meet me uh, on the web. It's donniscomachi.com. So it's D-O-N-D-I-S-C-U-M-A-C-I.com. And one gift for your listeners is they can pick up the first chapter of Career Moves free on my website. So if they hit the Career Moves tab, the first chapter is a free download to them. They don't need to register or anything. They can just open the gift and enjoy the gift. And I hope that uh, that, that your listeners will will love to read the whole book. But the first cha- the first chapter um, introduces the story and the characters and, and can get you, and, and they are compelling, I think. And uh, it also introduces that first, uh, the model, the high-performance zone. So those four elements, which are perspective and leadership and then managing your capabilities and your resources. And where those four pieces come together, you will find your high-performance zone. So the goal is, how do I become more intentional with all four elements? And how, and, and how do I take more responsibility for them? Yeah. Where am I waiting for them to be supplied to me rather than um, being – where am I trying to be a consumer rather than a creator? Right. Understanding, I think the key takeaway is knowing that it is entirely up to us to make sure that we are um, doing those four things, leadership, perspective, you know, capabilities and resources, understanding all of those four things. Um, it's necessary for us to be authentically engaged. I mean, it's what it's all about. I love your books. I mean, I love the book. I want to read the other two, and, and I, I would encourage, especially the male listeners out there, don't be um, – uh, shied away from the fact that it may seem like it's more uh, your niche is, is um, towards women. There's a lot of good nuggets in there for everybody. So I think even though that is kind of your niche, um, I, it, there's good stuff in there for everybody. And I think they are definitely human skills. Yeah. And then there's that whole uh, publishing wisdom that women buy a lot of books, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I have really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much. Well, I'd love to have you back. In fact, one of the things I'm starting to do is um, have themed podcasts. And so what I'm starting to do is, is bringing back other guests, maybe behind the scenes. Well, um, you and I can decide this uh, in well in advance. Let's pick a theme. Let's pick a topic. And let's just focus it around that. I did, did my first one with Paul Kellen, and it went really well. And so I'd like to do that with you, too, uh, in the future if you're up for that. I'd be, I'd be happy to. be an honor. Thank you. All right. Donnie, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.